Today's scripture comes from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a long-life friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. As you're seated, let, a, let me pray for us. Father, we, we give you thanks for this day, this first Sunday of Advent. We give you thanks for this season where we get to be uh, just reminded once again of the significance of the reality that you sent your son. And Father, we just thank you for your presence with us by your spirit. And we ask you that you would help us to take this text and to live into it with all of our hearts. We ask you all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Brett. I'm part of the team here as well, and it is my joy to be opening the scriptures with you. And as I said, today does mark the beginning of the season of Advent. Uh, And over the next three Sundays, we're going to be walking through a small portion of Titus chapter 2. So the next three Sundays, we're going to do that. But as you heard just now, we are in Acts 13. We're also going to be in Matthew chapter 5, talking about the vision of Christ City Church talking about the vision of Christ City and why we do things the way that we do as a church and then as a growing network of churches. And so I want to give you uh, an outline so we can orient our time together. I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about being salt and light people. Salt and light people. I want to talk about the sent and sending mission. And then we're going to talk about the Christ City vision. Salt and light people, sent and sending mission, and then we're going to talk about the Christ City vision. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. This comes from the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. We call this the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus sits down and teaches his disciples the way of his kingdom. And so Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 is what we're going to look at. It says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if Salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Part of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And in that text, I want you to look at verse 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth. You are. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus is speaking to his followers, even now as I speak to a room full of people who are following Jesus. And I just want you to see that Jesus tells people who they are before he tells them what to do. You are the salt of the earth. You are, not not you ought to be. But he's speaking to his followers and he is teaching them what it means to be people in his kingdom. And he says, you are salt of the earth. In some religious worldviews, you need to become what you should be in order to be accepted. But in Christianity, it's totally different. And we just need to note this as we begin to look at this passage. In Christianity, you are accepted not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of Jesus' performance for you. So in Christianity, you are called to become who you already are because you've already been accepted because of Christ. In other religious worldviews, you need to become what you should be in order to be accepted, but Christianity is different than that. And that's what Jesus is communicating to them. 
in other world uh, religions, other religious worldviews, you need to earn a right standing, and then you can receive your identity as an enlightened person or, or, or whatever the different ideology would say. You need to become so that you can be accepted. You, you need to clean yourself up so that you can be accepted. But in Christianity, you receive your identity first without earning it on no merit of your own, and then you live into it. It's first received, and then you live into it. So you're not justified or, or able to stand before God because of how well you've performed. You can stand before God by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ because of how well he performed for you. So Jesus tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the good news to you today. There is not some sort of chart where you need to be this tall to ride this ride. You need to recognize what Christ has done and then offered to you by grace through faith where you believe into what he has done. You trust him in what he has done and then you receive a new identity and then you live into it. A lot of people have it backwards. And they think that you need to become something first so that you would be acceptable to God. No, no, Jesus Christ died in your place. You are acceptable to God. Verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, salt, you have salt in your house. Everyone does. It is a household necessity, just like it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus was preaching this. Salt's used in that time primarily not just to season food, to preserve food. It's kind of the only way when you live in a hot climate that you could preserve things like meat from just rotting. Now, if I'm honest, when I read this passage, it's a little bit confusing because I've never known salt to lose its saltiness. Have you? (laughs) Salt is salt. It's like trying to say that you've got some water in your house that has lost its wetness. It doesn't make any sense to me. Salt that loses its saltiness doesn't make sense to us. That's because we have a different process for refining salt than they did 2,000 years ago. This would have made a lot of sense to people living in first century Palestine. See, our our salt is remarkably stable in terms of its chemical compound um, because we've refined it. And so our salt does not lose its saltiness. It's pure when it arrives at your house. But the salt that the people used in the region of the Dead Sea was different in, in a sense. It wasn't pure. They were able to collect a white powder that had a lot of salt in it, but was not exclusively salt. And so the salt that they used was not pure. So this white powder that they used had salt mixed in with a bunch of other minerals, and it's possible that the salt itself could get washed out of the powder that they had. And what you were left with was a bunch of minerals that looked like salt, but actually weren't useful for anything except taking outside and throwing onto the ground so people could trample on it. There's no use for it. And that's the point that Jesus is making here when he says you are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness. If you're washed out and you lose your distinctiveness as followers of Jesus, Jesus is saying that you cannot then do what you're called to do because you won't be who you're called to be as it relates to the rest of the world around you. You are the salt of the earth. What he's saying is that we as followers of Jesus cannot bring our contribution to the world if we lose our distinctiveness as his people. We are the salt of the earth. 
We're no good to anyone if we lose the distinctiveness of who we are as followers of Jesus. We don't serve the world by becoming like the world. We serve the world by offering a countercultural Christ-like community. You are the salt of the earth. It's the first thing. Look at the text, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, you are the light of the world. Jesus tells us who we are before he commissions us for ministry in his kingdom. He tells us who we are before he tells us what to do. And who are we? We are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. And nobody lights a lamp and then hides it. You may have a lampshade on your lamp, but if you did not have electricity and you lit a lamp in your home, you would not then shield the light so that nobody could see. This is too much light. You would light a lamp and you would hold it up so that all may see. Light illuminates the way. Light exposes the darkness for what it is. We can't be the light of the world and shine the light of Christ if we are people who are hidden away and withdrawn from our culture. We don't serve the world by leaving the world in darkness and turning down the brilliance of the light of Christ within us just to fit in. We're no good to anyone if we go incognito with the light that we have and the light that we are. We are salt and light people. Now let's draw the salt and light together for a second. What is Jesus actually getting at? The countercultural community of Jesus' people are salt and light, and as the salt of the earth, we need to maintain our Christ-like distinctiveness. And as the light of the world, we need to engage in our Christ-like mission to shine the light of Christ into the darkness of the world we live in. This is our way of being. This is the way that we engage with culture around us. We have both of these impulses in John chapter 17, which is a prayer that Jesus prays. And Jesus asks our Heavenly Father to do magnificent things through his people. And he's talking to the the Father and he's praying. And he says in John 17, verse 14, this this is the prayer of Jesus. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the prayer of Jesus. Jesus says we are not of the world, just as he is not of the world. But that he wants us in the world, just as he is in the world. And I think he's saying he wants us to be a countercultural people, not a conformed people. People who do not conform to the patterns of this world, Romans 12, but have been transformed by the renewal of their minds and therefore live as a countercultural people in the cities where they dwell. I think it's right that we are to be in the world and not of the world, but I want to press it a little bit further. Not only were the salt of the earth where we are to maintain our Christ-like distinctiveness. And not only are we the light of the world, trying to shine light in the way that we engage in our Christ-like mission. In John chapter 20, verse 21, after Jesus was resurrected, he's standing with his disciples and he says this. In verse 21, he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
See, the Father did not send Jesus to blend in, to compromise, to lose his distinctiveness. Jesus was set apart. He was holy. And tempted as though we are, he was without sin. The Father sent Jesus into the world to shine as light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Revealing and illuminating so that we would all know how loved we are and how we might be saved. So we are to be in the world, but not of the world. But even better is to realize we are not of the world, but sent into the world. That there's a purpose behind this. It's not just sort of a passive existence, but there's an active component to being a follower of Jesus, who is a salt and light person. This is what it means to be the countercultural community of Jesus' followers. This is what it means to be salt and light. The dual images of salt and light reveal two aspects of our witness as Christians and as a church, and two aspects of our witness that are actually very difficult at times to balance. Distinctiveness from the city at the same time as engagement with the city. To be salt does not mean that we are legalistic. And that we are separated in that sense. It means we are called to be loving yet distinct, set apart and holy. To be the light means we don't hide away in fear. It simply means we bring our distinctiveness into public and let the light of Christ shine. And Jesus was a perfect example of both. Salt and light people, this is who we're called to be. And we have a sent and sending mission. And so you've got to ask, what does it mean? What does it look like when we live as salt and light people and and follow Jesus? If, If we are salt and light people, we will participate in his sent and sending mission. He was sent by the Father, and now he sends us. And and I just want to show you what it looks like as a church. Acts chapter 13, you've heard this read. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They're in the city of Antioch. This is a very large city. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire, a very influential city. It's actually the first place that followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, were called Christians. It was in the city of Antioch. The very, very multicultural city. People from all over the world, even as represented here in the beginning of Acts chapter 13. And the church in Antioch was all in on mission. They had received the gospel. People had come from Jerusalem when there was persecution, and they had ended up in Antioch, and they preached the good news to people there. And whether they were Jews or Gentiles, they received the good news and they all worshiped together. And they were growing in their faith. And and Paul comes along with Barnabas and they, they show up and they begin to teach and disciple the church and teach the church all about the scriptures, who God is, what he's like, what he did for us in Christ and what he's now called us to do and how we are to then live. This is what is going on in the city of Antioch. Imagine having Paul and Barnabas as like your pastors, your teachers, your preachers among you. And then imagine saying to yourself while you're fasting and praying, it seems to me that the Lord wants to send them off. And someone else in the prayer meeting goes, yeah, I believe I've just had a word. We should send Paul and Barnabas away. And you go, no way. That's my favorite preacher. No. Yes. Yes. They send them on their way to preach the gospel where the gospel has not yet been preached. Why? 
As the Father sent me, so I send you. Antioch is the sending point where they start this missionary journey in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the support of a sending church. It says in Acts 13 and 14, if you keep reading, it says they went from city to city preaching the gospel. It says they evangelized in these cities and they made disciples in these cities and Paul had his assassination plotted in these cities and Paul was stoned and left for dead in one of these cities. And then what they did, seems a little bit counterintuitive to me, is they went back to all of those cities. They go, duh, 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 duh. this is really rough and bad. We're getting persecuted and beaten. Let's go back and visit again. Duh, 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 duh. And what they did is they planted churches in all of these cities and they appointed elders over these churches in all of these cities. And then they go back to Antioch where they were sent from and they give a report. And I want you to notice something. When the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas on this journey to go preach the gospel where the gospel had not yet been preached and to plant churches where there had not yet been any churches planted, I just want you to notice who was involved. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Hey, who was involved in this? Well, the Holy Spirit spoke. The Holy Spirit spoke to them and gave some direction. Who else was involved? It was the whole church. This whole community of Jesus followers in Antioch sent them out. Two were sent, but the rest did the sending, and everyone was involved in this missionary church planting effort. And when they came home, who do they want to share the testimony with after they'd gone from city to city planting churches and getting beaten and getting persecuted and chased and run out of town and all the different things that went on? Who do they want to come and celebrate uh, the, the reality that many had turned to faith in Christ? Where did they go? It says in Acts chapter 14, later on in verse 27, it says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It was the whole sending church they gathered. I just want you to notice that. This is what drives the ministry of Christ City. This is what drives us. There's no passengers on the bus around here. We're all involved. Every single one of you who are followers of Jesus are involved in what God has called us to do as a church. Some are sent and some do the sending and everyone is involved in the missional work of establishing new gospel preaching churches. It's what we've been doing since 2013. In 2013, we planted this church. In 2017, we planted Christ City Kitsilano. In 2019, we planted Christ City East Vancouver. In 2023, Lord willing, we're going to be able to plant Christ City Surrey. I want you to notice that Paul and Barnabas Barnabas were not radical loners. It wasn't Paul and Barnabas hanging out at the restaurant somewhere, just having a meal together, going like, you know what? We should go plant some churches. And they're like, yeah, we should go plant some churches. And then they just took off on their own. They had a sending church. This is really important. Because I've met church planters who made decisions like that before. They're just like hanging out at a pub and they're like, everyone thinks we should go plant a church. And you're like, who's everyone? It's like, no, it's you and your friend. Because that's the everyone of your relational circle. This maybe is not a good idea. Have you submitted this to anyone? The Holy Spirit said they should do it and told the church, not just Paul and Barnabas. I'm sure he told Paul and Barnabas too, but he told the whole church. So they fasted and prayed, laid hands on them and sent them off on mission. This is a really important factor in how the church spread. They're not radical loners just kind of venturing off into the great unknown. They are sent missionary church planters who have the backing of a church at home and and so much so that they return back to that church at home and tell them the story of what they saw God do. They've been sent by those who did the sending. 
so that the fame and deeds of God would be known in their day. And, and we send, we send, and some of you will be sent, so that the fame and deeds of God might be known in our day. I have a question for you, though. In a, in a world that really values comfort as much as our world does, what, what compels those who are sent and those who do the sending? What drives a church to send two of its best leaders to leave and go preach the gospel somewhere else? What motivates Paul and Barnabas for them on their own just to venture off into new territories to preach the life of Christ to hostile people? I'm sure that there was somebody in that church, there's somebody on that board, I'm telling you right now, at the Church of Antioch in the first century, who said, you know what we should do? We should make them an offer they can't refuse. Let's throw some money at these guys. Let's keep them here. Honestly, let's just keep them here. Let's not send them off. We really like having them here. But Paul's been a tent maker the whole time. He's, doing a, his, he's got a bivocational thing. He's doing another job and serving the church. Let's just offer them a compensation package that will keep him here forever. Somebody, at, somebody in Antioch had that thought because that, that, that continues today. What keeps a person motivated when your enemies are plotting your assassination and stoning you and leaving you for dead and they get up and go, let's go back to that city and see how they're doing. What motivates you for that? Why would generation after generation of Christian missionaries do this over the course of the last 2,000 years, giving us some of the most compelling stories we've ever heard in all of our lives? I'll tell you, there's only one reason, it's Jesus. That's why. It's the way of Jesus. He said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. It's who we are. These are people who had real encounters with Jesus. They've been compelled by God's love to preach the good news of the gospel anywhere and everywhere they went. Salt and light people. Salt and light people, distinct, yet on mission. When you come to Jesus, I'll tell you that something happens. Something happens. He makes you his own. And then he gives you the burden he has for the lost. When's the last time you wept over the city? I can tell you the last time I got angry over the state of the city. I'm so frustrated. Read the news, get angry. Just wake up in the morning, read the news, get angry. Next day, wake up in the morning, read the news, get angry. Switch up that rhythm, get up in the morning, read my Bible, <laughs> weep over the city, weep over the province, weep over the nation, weep over the nations. When you come to Jesus, he makes you his own and he gives you his heart for the lost. See, when, I think at times we look at people who are doing things that are very unchristlike, and we're frustrated by them. Like when people get into positions of power and then they use that power for their own gain and we sit there and we're like, Ugh! they're lost. Lost people do things that lost people do. They do that because they're lost. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, you just need to understand, I've been there. I did things that lost people do when I was lost. I, I, my life did not look like a follower of Jesus when I was not a follower of Jesus. It's when Jesus got a hold of me and made me his own, he then broke my heart for people who have not yet met him. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew chapter 9. Verse 35, it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and claiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
It's the compassion of Jesus for the lost that drives the mission of God. Nothing else. It's a gut-level compassion. Like, you know when you see something that breaks your heart and you just can't not weep? That's the compassion that Jesus had for the lost in this passage of Scripture. It's a gut-level compassion that we then receive from him. It's remembering what it's like to live apart from Christ. Some of you remember. It's what happens when you watch the city that you live in and the people of that city are running headlong into destruction and they are none the wiser. And that compels us then to implore them to be reconciled to God through the saving work of Christ. That's the mission of every follower of Jesus and every church community. Look what it says, Matthew 9. Let's keep reading. Verse 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Salt and light people with a sent and sending mission. We're first salt and light people, distinct and yet trying to shine the light of Christ as his sent and sending people on mission. And that leads us to the third point about the vision of Christ City. And I want you to see that this mission that Jesus has given the church, this compassionate mission, this mission that we see Paul and Barnabas on, so sent from Antioch. This is a global reality. It's globally shared. It's in every place and every time. But the way that we do that becomes contextually unique to the place and the time that God has called us. So like I haven't gone to any synagogues to preach the gospel when I've gone and traveled to other cities. But that's what Paul did because at his time he could go and preach at the synagogue. He could walk in as a rabbi and say, hi, I'm an expert in the Old Testament. It wasn't called the Old Testament, it's just the law. I'm an expert in the law and the prophets. And I'd like to share something with you. And they would say, oh, esteemed guest, would you please stand up? And then he'd be like, hey, we've been waiting for a Messiah. He's here, his name's Jesus. And that's why they beat him. Sometimes that wasn't a welcome message, but here's what happened. Sometimes they beat him, people always came to know him. People always came to know Jesus when he preached the gospel. We don't do that today because we live in a different world. There's a different approach to it. There's a unique reality to the world that we live in. Maybe some of you are called to go and do that. I don't know. That's not been my reality. The vision of Christ City is to establish a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to meet the demands of city ministry and small enough to maintain community. Very simple. We just feel called to plant a network of neighborhood churches. Big enough to do ministry, small enough to maintain community. You say, how big is too big? Three gatherings stinks. <laughs> That's what I'll tell you. I don't have an actual number for you, but once we're forced beyond two gatherings, it stinks. Because there's people that you've never met in the third gathering, and they're wonderful, but you'll never bump into them on a Sunday morning. So we should plant another church. Yeah, we're planting a church in Surrey, and that's awesome. But unless like 100 of you want to go move to Surrey next year, which some of you may, God might call some of you to do that. But, but, but unless like 100 of you go to help plant that new church, we're going to be at three gatherings still. So we want to plant another church. We need to get ready again. We need to get the pipeline going. We need to get leadership development. We need to get people primed to go and plant another church. This is, this is the thing we need to be able to do. Large enough to meet the demands of doing ministry in the city, small enough to maintain community. Why do we do this? Well, we think more people need to meet Jesus. Statistically, 
more people meet Jesus in newer church plants than they do in historic churches. We can argue about why, but that's just statistically true. Millions of people in Metro Vancouver are facing an eternity separated from God. We live in a a metro region, the population of about 2.4, 2.5 million people, and millions of them do not yet know Jesus. So when you let that settle in, there's lots of room to plant more churches. There's lots of room for more evangelism. There's lots of room for more discipleship. There's lots of room for us to live out the salt and light life that we have because that's who we are within the sent and sending mission that Jesus has given to each and every one of us. So why a network of neighborhood churches? Well, two pictures and then I'm done. Some of you have seen these pictures before. I've used them several years ago. This is a hydrangea flower. Blue, white, and pink. Hydrangea flowers are interesting. Why plant a network of neighborhood churches? Well, those are the same plant with the same seeds, but they produce different color flowers. And the reason that they produce different color flowers is that they're planted in a different soil. The level of acidity determines the color of the flower on a hydrangea plant. Now, I'm not a botanist. I read that on the internet. But it comes from some very good sources who tell me that that's true. Then I checked with people who do grow things like flowers, which I do not do and have very little skill at, and they told me that this is true. You could, you could say that the hydrangea plant that, that is flowering has the same DNA, if I, if I could say it that way. It's the same seed, like they're all hydrangeas, but they look different based on the soil that they're planted in. And here's the thing, when you plant a hydrangea seed, you'll always get a hydrangea. You're, you're not going to plant that seed and then think, whoa, that's shocking that thistles grew when I planted the hydrangea seed. Or you, you plant that and you're going, wow, an apple tree. Praise the Lord. If you plant a hydrangea seed, you're going to get a hydrangea plant. It's not going to all of a sudden bloom roses. It's going to bloom hydrangea flowers. I think the church of Jesus is like this. Um, I've had the privilege of traveling a bit and worshiping with churches around the world. I've worshiped in places with big lights, big sound systems, and people standing outside trying to compel people to come in and worship. And they got the smoke machine pumping, and they got the music's just thumping, and there's no windows in the building. It's all black because they're controlling the atmosphere. Right? I've, I've, I've been in those churches. I've also worshiped with churches <clears throat> in North Africa where I got ushered into a basement where I stayed for five days because I was there to help teach. And um, I was told that we were not leaving that building because of where we were and what I was doing. And it turns out I stand out as a white guy in, South, in North Africa. <laughs> So we weren't, we weren't going to be leaving the facility. I've also been able to worship in other contexts where I was ushered into a back elevator and taken to an apartment where we worshiped with quiet voices in song. You plant a hydrangea seed, you're always going to get a hydrangea. But based upon the soil it's planted in, it's going to yield a different color flower. I think it's the same with the Church of Jesus. 
They were all churches, but some had blue flowers, some had white flowers, some had pink flowers. They all had the same DNA, which flows from that transformative encounter with Jesus, and it be, we become part of his church, and we seek to live that out faithfully under the authority of Scripture, and we're salt and light people, and we're on mission trying to help more people because of the compassion and the love that we have that we've received from Jesus when he saved us, but an underground church in rural China is probably not going to look the same on the surface as a, a church plant in the urban center of a North American city. It's just going to be different. They're both going to worship. They're both going to celebrate communion. They're both going to baptize new believers. They're both going to enjoy the experience of being in the community of Jesus' people. They're going to display the fruit of the Spirit. They're going to engage in the gifts of the Spirit. They're going to enjoy that familial love with one another. They're going to repent from their sin. They're going to teach from Scripture. They're going to do all the other things that a church does to make it a church. But this is what I need you to see. If you go and plant a church in a North American city center and you go and plant a church in some place where they're harshly persecuted, the flower is going to look a little different. Same seed, different soil. Ephesians chapter 4 says there is one body, the church, one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Right, do you know how many churches are in Vancouver? One. Same number as in Canada. Same number as in North America. Same number as on all the inhabited continents. One body, one spirit, many local expressions. Some of them have pink flowers and blue flowers and white flowers because of the soil they're planted in. All that's the same, but the expression of it is different. I think that's what we have on a very micro scale in Vancouver, a micro scale. Vancouver is a neighborhood city. There's 23 neighborhoods plus UBC. Metro Vancouver has 21 municipalities and one First Nation. They're very different. Something, uh, something like, I think it's 59% of households do not have English or French. The two official Canadian languages do not have English or French as a first language. 59% of the households in Metro Vancouver. I, I inverted it. I think it's 59% do and 41% don't. And the 41% that don't have English or French as a first language have 90 different languages that are represented as their mother tongue. This is the problem of not putting it in my notes after reading statistical data all week. <laughs> There's a beautiful diversity in the region that we live in. And that means some of the churches look different than others based on their neighborhood, their municipality, their locale, their ethnic background, and even their language. Same gospel planted in different soil might produce a different colored flower, but it's always going to produce a church. It's a church that worships Jesus. That's a true church. And you go, oh, that's great. If that's true, then why plant a network of neighborhood churches? Why not just plant a bunch of independent churches? We're not opposed to that. We would love to help plant some independent churches. It just has been that this is the vision God has given us, and anytime we've had an opportunity to plant, the church planters have said they want to plant a network church, a network, a Christ City church. We actually help other people plant churches a lot. We're involved in that ministry. But the vision that God has given to Christ City is a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to meet the demands of doing ministry here, but that are small enough to maintain community. One more picture. One more picture. This is an aspen grove. This is an aspen grove in Utah. 
by its sheer size and its mass, this is a picture of the world's largest living organism. It's an aspen grove in Utah that has 47,000 trees that are connected to the same root system. And again, I'm not a biologist, but when biologists do tests that biologists do, I don't know what those are called, they can, they can figure out that every one of those 47,000 trees have come from one parent tree. They all share an identical genetic makeup. And they're all interconnected, which means, well, it means a lot of things, but first and foremost, it means that when one area is experiencing some kind of difficulty, the resources from the other area can make up for it. So if there's an area of drought where maybe the section of the 106 acres that this covers is not well watered, they can draw resources from the well watered end of the uh, aspen grove. If one area has a fire blow through and it burns some trees up, it can regenerate faster because it's drawing resources from the entirety of a 106 acre grove. They're all interconnected. The aspen grove is nicknamed Pando, which is Latin for I spread. That's our hope for Christ City. We're a network of neighborhood churches who share a common foundation to a bunch of network resources that share a theological affinity for one another, have the same doctrinal foundations and the same philosophy of ministry. But when we plant in different neighborhoods and in different cities, it allows us to also contextualize the gospel to the neighborhood and city that we're planting in. We could plant a Christ City church in a language that I don't speak and it would be just as much connected to the life and community of Christ City as anything else we're doing because of our shared identity. The root system is implied in the network, but it's unity with diversity. It's unity that allows for diversity. And so a church here, a church in Kitsilano, a church in East Vancouver, there are three very different churches who all agree <laughs> to work together. We've got some stuff that's been going on and a kind of a slow burn happening on the downtown east side. It's been there for a while with Heath Meekle and what he's doing. If he plants a church in the downtown east side, it's going to look a lot different than this church. What Daniel's going to do in Surrey, Daniel and Stephanie will be going out, they live out there already, but when they're planting, it'll end up looking different than the churches in Vancouver because it's a different city. We're salt and light people. We are a countercultural people. We're not a conformed people. As the salt of the earth, we need to maintain that Christ-like distinctiveness. And as the light of the world, we need to engage in that Christ-like mission. That means that we then are people who understand ourselves to be sent and also to be sending. Some are sent and some do the sending, but all are involved in planting new churches. And just so you know, if you're on the sending team and you're staying and you're not going anywhere, you're still sent because you're sent here in this city, in this neighborhood with these people. Our identity as the sent people of God compels us. Jesus' compassion for the lost becomes our compassion for the lost, and that compassionate love compels us to share the good news of the gospel. We have an intentional kingdom mindset in our network model. Like, can you, can you just imagine if they'd have said to Paul and Barnabas, you can't go? Like, if the Antiochian church said, no, 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 we're, once we're a certain size, we'll send you. But right now, we don't know if we have the resources to let you two go. Can you imagine the hole in church history if Paul and Barnabas did not go and preach the gospel on the first missionary journey? That, that's wild to even think about. The book of Acts is rewritten. 
It'd be very, very different if they did not participate in the sent and sending mission that God has given them. Same for us. I've met people, I mean, we, we get to watch the baptism testimonies that come from the two churches we've planted from here. What if we didn't do that? That's all I think about. Just think about it all the time. What if we didn't do that? It's an amazing opportunity for God to use us when we're obedient to walk as his salt and light people with that sent and sending mission. William Temple said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. So three things. Would you join us in praying as we get set to plant Christ City Surrey next September? We don't have a venue yet. The team is just forming. The word is just spreading. Things are just starting to get out. We've got partner churches who are going to contribute to what we're doing. Praise God. Would you pray? Would you consider if God might be calling you to go? He might be calling you to uproot and plant yourself in Surrey with Daniel and Stephanie and the rest of the team. It's just something you should consider. We should always be open to leaving on purpose, to be sent. We should always be open to that. And so we'd ask you to pray. And then would you join us in giving sacrificially to that Advent giving campaign that Kendra talked about before so that we can get Christ City Surrey everything that they need so that they can reach people in a new neighborhood to the glory of God. Some are sent and some do the sending, but all of us are involved in planting new churches. Amen? Amen. Would you stand as we respond?